Welcome to Conversations, a podcast by Christ Presbyterian Church of Auburn, where we get a chance to sit down and have a conversation with Pastor Zellner and learn how God's Word applies to our lives. Welcome back to Conversations. We are here with the amazing man himself, the beautiful Pastor Eric Zellner. How are you? I'm good, Will. Thank you so much. That's the kindest introduction I've ever received in my whole life. <laughs> Nobody's ever said any of those things. Well, they're all true. Um, we're going through the Lord's Supper. We This past week, we did the Lord's Supper um, Part 1 and went through the four different views that have um, kind of come up throughout the Christian church. And now today we come to look at some of these contemporary issues. I guess before we get into these, uh, Eric, do you think these are important to talk about or kind of what do you think is how we should look at these like from an overarching? Yeah, I think some of the things I want to talk about are just the things that people already talk about concerning the Lord's Supper. So um, there's just various uh, questions, comments that I've received over the years in pastoral ministry that people ask, and it and it usually comes from folks who come from various backgrounds. Uh, so you might have a, a Baptist person who wants to ask about grape juice, um, especially somebody who comes from the South. Uh, you might have somebody that's a pretty significant, uh, careful reader of the Old Testament that wants to understand what's what's this about unleavened bread. You, then you have um, in the early two thousands, late nineties, you had people who began to come out of uh, non-covenantal, non-reformed context, and they started asking, hey, why aren't our children partaking of the Lord's Supper, uh, our our children who haven't yet professed faith? And so some of these issues that, that I would say are contemporary issues are contemporary in the sense that these are some of the questions that people ask me and have asked me in the last 15 years of pastoral ministry. So with that being said, let's start it off with you hinted at it, is grape juice an acceptable substitute for wine in the Lord's Supper? Yeah, I think, um, so the thing I always like to say to people is that there's there's no question in the text, people want to debate this, but there's no question in the text that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper uh, with wine. He used, he used wine and unleavened bread because he was taking the Passover meal and saying that Passover meal is intended to be fulfilled in me. And I'm saying this means something greater than your deliverance in the past out of Egypt. This involves your deliverance through my shed blood for the purpose of your salvation. And so when we talk about it, you know the concept of grape juice, we have to remember that you just need to begin with this point that Jesus didn't um, initiate the sacrament with grape juice because grape juice didn't actually exist. And so I always think it's helpful to... Uh, give people a quick history lesson. Any Google uh, search of this can can give you the same information. The history of Welch's grape juice is the history of how we got to even asking the question, is grape juice an acceptable substitute? Um, so prior to 1869, there was no such thing as grape juice. And, and the reason there's no such thing as grape juice is because you don't have pasteurization and you don't have refrigeration. And so for centuries... When uh, grapes were were uh, 
squished and the juice was drawn from them, it was to put over into jars and, and the purpose was to cause them to ferment, scrape off some of the, uh, the pulp type material and then have a, a wine. So even when Jesus uh, changes the water into wine at Cana of Galilee, uh, that which is called the better wine, according to the master of ceremonies, is that which would have had a, a little bit higher volume of, of alcohol and a little more refined uh, taste. So, so that which the, the family could have afforded would have been fermented grape juice, but it would have not have been as deeply and richly full-bodied wine. So his comment uh, in, in John 2 about this is, you know, usually people save the good stuff for later. Um, I mean, for earlier and, and serve the bad stuff later, is telling us that, that there's a, we're not talking about, you know, the grape juice here is, is mm-hmm. not of the finest quality grape juice that I really like. Um, we're talking about a wine product. So I, I mention that only because it's a, it requires a lot of not only mental but verbal gymnastics to presume that Jesus is dealing with grape juice. Um, because in the ancient world, uh, there's really only two drinks that people drink. Um, it's water, when they can have it purified, and it's wine. Um, so is grape juice an acceptable substitute? In our church, we, we offer both, and it's not because um, of any reason other than a cultural appropriation. Uh, there was, in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, a strong temperance movement in the United States and portions of Europe that led to uh, this product, which Mr. Welch, who was, a, who was a Methodist man, Dr. Welch's unfermented wine. Uh, it was a pure grape juice, um, and it became known at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, and it begins to kind of spread. And it's offered as an alternative to fermented wine, and it was specifically for the purpose of communion in churches. Uh, and the, the thought was, uh, we don't want to serve wine to people who may be struggling with alcoholism. And so at least what I think is helpful to, to wrestle with is what did Jesus actually institute? Mm-hmm. It was wine. And, and the wine has all of the properties of, of a bite to it. Uh, wine has a little bit of a burn to it. When we remember the concept of Jesus drinking the wrath of God to the dregs, it's, that's appropriate imagery to wine because the dregs of the wine is the bottom of that goblet um, and all the, the uh, particles that settle at the bottom of a wine goblet. Um, so I think we just acknowledge where these things came from and acknowledge that when we're choosing grape juice, we're choosing an accommodation that Jesus didn't incorporate. Mm-hmm. But probably for our cultural sensibilities, it's an okay place for a lot of us to land. Uh, children can partake of the Lord's Supper um, and and not feel startled by the by the taste of wine. Right. I, I don't think it's radically problematic if they do taste it. So anyway, we saw this personally at last our service last week, where <laughs> we had great, we had juice and wine, but we actually didn't have juice. They were both wine, so there were a lot of kids in our church. Clocking back some wine, and we're very startled by that. We only served wine. That was a clever trick on our (laughs) behalf, wasn't it? (laughs) So it sounds like you're saying that wine is probably the preference, but because of grape juice's original intent, which is 
pretty much just wine except unfermented and mm-hmm. handling the cultural sensibilities that it's an, it's an acceptable form. Yeah, I, I agree. That's exactly what I would say. Okay, next one. Is unleavened bread required? Okay, so uh, when Jesus takes the unleavened bread of the Passover meal and says, this is my body given for you, um, we, we need to understand what, what leaven meant in the Old Testament. So leaven signifies in the Old Testament uh, sin. And, and the reason we know that is because various times in the Old Testament, uh, God says, get the leaven out of your heart. Or Jesus comes in the New Testament and says, the leaven of the Pharisees is malice and wrath and all these other things. Um, it, it, is a, it is biblically meant to communicate a kind of residual sin. And so when God is, is establishing the Passover meal, he's saying, get that residual sin out of your house, out of your life by way of repentance. So the real issue, while they were called to sweep their houses and and go across their uh, cabinets and get all the leaven out, there's more going on there. Of course, God was saying, be the kind of people who would be willing to search your own hearts Mm -hmm. and get get the sin out by way of repentance, bringing it to me uh, for cleansing. So when Jesus picks up that bread and he suddenly goes, this is my body given for you, He's saying, if we understand the gospel, this is my gift to you, a broken, torn body of flesh that does not have sin in it. So in giving us that gift, the unleavened bread is meant to communicate something that's pretty significant, and that is that Jesus' body does not contain sin. Uh, However, I, I think it's also helpful to know in this day and age, People think more about gluten than they do about leaven, right? So vocabulary is uh, is probably a challenge. So, you know, for someone to think about what is unleavened bread, uh, it's probably not something that most people can find or figure out. And when I have to make all of those explanations by way of jumping, then I think uh, the vast majority of people can understand Jesus saying, this is my body given for you, and it's bread. Uh, or Jesus saying in John, in the book of John, I am the bread of life. Um, and so I, I don't think it's absolutely required. I think it's helpful in terms of its imagery, but it's not absolutely required. Okay. Uh, next one is communion biblical. And for those that wouldn't know what that means, is essentially children or infants receiving the Lord's Supper. Is that biblical? Yeah, and ch- it's children who haven't yet professed faith in Christ, right? So the reason that people ask that question, here's where it, generally comes from. In the Old Testament, people, children were, were taking the Lord's Supper. So it seems that there is... Oh, um, we're taking the Passover. I, I'm sorry, we're taking the Passover. Yeah, I'm sorry. So they were taking the Passover inside their, their families. And so the question people ask is, if Jesus took the Passover and gave us the Lord's Supper from it, then how could we exclude our children? Because God was trying to communicate in the Passover meal you are a part of the covenant community. Uh, he was saying that to every member of the family. Um, I think that the important distinction is this. In the New Testament, we have a kind of discontinuity, a kind of break with, with the old, in that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says, it is important that you search your hearts, that you examine yourself before you take partake of the Lord's Supper, 
um, so that you may not be you may not bring yourself under God's judgment. And so historically in the church, the way this has been understood is uh, when a child comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ and professes their faith, they've been they've already been baptized as infants, um, and then they come to profess that faith publicly. This is the opportunity for them to do precisely what 1 Corinthians 11 says, and that is to examine the body of Christ, to weigh the body of Christ, and, and to comprehend the gospel uh, before they're partaking of it. So if in the Old Testament, uh, circumcision and Passover were meant to draw lines around the broad covenant community, everybody in national Israel partook of those things, as long as by gender, um, in the case of circumcision. But in this in this case, uh, what seems to be very clear is we don't go and do mass, um, we don't serve uh, baptism to the whole world. Uh, we do draw a line around those who are members of the covenant community. We draw that line around parents who are believers and anyone else who professes faith in Christ, and then the children of those parents. So that's what's marking us out into the covenant community. But then the discontinuity takes place in this way. In the New Testament, it seems that the Scripture requires that to partake of the Lord's Supper is to partake of something that causes me to embrace from the depths of my heart the true meaning of the sacrament, mm-hmm. which is why we partake and give only to those who have come to faith in Christ and right. professed it. What would you say to somebody that says this whole break between Passover and the Lord's Supper attacks the validity of baptism and infant baptism? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I would say I would say there's tons of places in the Bible where there's continuity and discontinuity between Old Testament and New Testament. Um, and so a, a strict argument from consistency, like, hey, if you're going to do this with one sacrament, you must do it with the other, right. is an argument that, that holds water uh, beautifully in our heads more than it does in the Bible. Um, and, and what I mean by that is there's, um, do, you know, if, if we're going to take continuity from the Old Testament, and, uh, and, and God calls his people to move into the promised land, and to devote everyone in the land of Canaan to complete and utter destruction. Um, all right, if we're going to take continuity from the Old Testament, and we say, okay, uh, God's actually called you to be one of his people, continuity means that I'm going to hang on to that promised land of Canaan pretty hard. Right. And that would then justify things like the Crusades and other ugly things that have happened throughout the history of the church, then you better go ahead and take up swords and go back and be willing to devote man, woman, and child and every animal in the land of modern-day Israel to complete and utter destruction, wipe out everyone who is not a Christian, and move them to the place of death. Right? Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. In terms of continuity, we're very comfortable with there being continuation of some things in the Old Testament— but not a continuation of all things in the Old Testament. Right. So what we want to do is pick up what Christ says and what the apostles understood in terms of those natural breaks. To be honest with you, if the Apostle Paul doesn't say in 1 Corinthians 11 that this sacrament requires a kind of searching of the heart, um, then I could be very comfortable with continuing that from old to new. Right. So I don't know if that answers the question. Somebody... 
Um, but arguments from consistency um, have to be weighed against what the Bible says concerning that consistency. Right. Okay, and our last one, how frequently should the Lord's Supper be observed? Okay, so so at this point I'm going to answer the question based on my own personal thoughts on this. And then, uh, and then each church tends to decide it based on multiple factors, not entirely just on my, my thoughts, okay? So um, it seems pretty clear to me in the New Testament churches that the Word of God and the sacraments are celebrated together. They, they seem to be practiced every time the, the body of believers gathers for worship on the Sabbath, I mean on Sunday. Um, so because of that, uh, I think it's important to recognize that, that there is a historical pattern where word and sacrament go together. Uh, I'm really comfortable with uh, practicing, exercising, and enjoying the Lord's Supper every time the word is preached on a, on a Sunday worship service. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, is, um, that is by way of acknowledging that the Word of God nourishes us and the sacrament nourishes us spiritually. We're feeding on Christ in the Word written. We're feeding on Christ in the Word that we hold, word which is represented in the sacraments as signs and seals of this uh, covenant of grace. So um, the way it often has been argued in um, more modern churches, and what I mean by that is since the Protestant Reformation, uh, is that we don't want to get people overly used to this so that it becomes rote and they forget how valuable and beautiful the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is. In historic Presbyterianism, that has resulted in some people taking the sacrament only once a year um, or um, twice a year, meaning every six months, or in some contexts, uh, every quarter, once per quarter. Those are uh, ways that it has taken place in um, the United States of America and some of Western Europe from, let's say, 1700s to today. That's, that's been practiced in various places in Reformed churches. Uh, today, and I think probably in the last 60 years, we've seen a recovery in Reformed churches of an interest in celebrating the Lord's Supper more frequently. And so um, I do think uh, that's a good uh, recovery of something that was has been probably uh, lost for bad reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is that the frequency allows us the blessing of partaking of the Lord's Supper in tangible ways. And, and here's the Lord condescending to us to give us signs that we can touch, taste, and feel to remember the message of the gospel itself. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of his people. Right. And I guess that kind of answers the person who looks at this podcast and maybe thinks, like, who cares if we use grape juice or not? Yeah. Because it's all pointing to this beautiful picture of the gospel in the Lord's Supper. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. So so even the early questions that we ask, grape juice, unleavened bread, um, and then who may partake, all of these things are... are um, are questions that come about when people are wrestling with the true meaning of these sacraments mm-hmm. and the true value of them. Um, and so I am for weekly communion. Um, I am content with monthly communion. Um, and I, I, in, in the church that we are, um, in the church that I have the privilege of pastoring right now, that's kind of where the elders are. I, I would 
Uh, I think it's important to trust the elders of your local church to read the context of the of the place and uh, what works functionally best for God's people in that place. Right. Well, thank you, Pastor Zoner, for working through these contemporary issues. And thank you for listening to uh, Conversations, a podcast by Christ Presbyterian Church. Thanks for the time today, Pastor Zoner. Thank you, Will. Appreciate having me. Absolutely. We'll see you guys in the next episode.